0: Woiy 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 Then you then go on the radio again. Yo! If you want no smoke free weed, grow bud yourself you need to go plant a seed. Grow bud yourself, make your knowledge increase. Grow bud, grow bud yourself, grow bud yourself.
1: Hey, all right. Welcome to episode number 12 of Grow Bud Yourself. We've got such an exciting show for you guys today. Uh some brand new breaking news about a new Uh, magazine project mike and i are both involved in Uh, we speak with dr mitch about driving while high and all kinds of other uh, psychological things the interview is with colin bell phd in plant science from mammoth microbes and as always a grow segment and questions from listeners just like you so stick around for grow bud yourself episode number 12 All right, and we are back. This is episode number 12. Very exciting, very exciting. Right, Mike?
2: Yeah, man, we're on to the toes. We went through all the
1: fingers, we're on to the toes now. (laughs) That's right, indeed. And we have some amazing news for you guys. Uh, Mike and I are now working for a new magazine called Northeast Leaf. Uh, This is in conjunction with uh, an existing company called Northwest Leaf and Leaf Nation. uh, Northwest Leaf has been around for 10 years, uh, printing in Washington State. Uh, they also have Oregon Leaf, they have California Leaf, Alaska Leaf, Maryland Leaf, and soon to be uh, DC Washington DC Leaf, and soon to be Amsterdam Leaf. But we are the Northeast Leaf. We are representing the eight states of the Northeast, being New York, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine, and. We are so excited. I mean, this for me, this is like back to my roots. I grew up in the Boston area. I live in the New York City area. So, uh, you know, the Northeast is my my home ground and where our, uh, my whole cannabis career evolved and got started. So uh, it's just real exciting. Uh, the podcast, of course, is, is going to remain weekly. We're going to keep doing Grow Bud Yourself, of course. Um, we're going to be involved in events. We're going to be uh, involved in the print magazine. Check us out on social media. Mike G, are you excited?
2: Yeah, man, it's going to be good. It's, it's, it's very uh, special to do it with uh, four former High Times staffers. It's it's you and I, and also um, Pete Thompson, who is a director of technology, and Mike Cherhoniak, our old friend Mike, uh, who does uh, ad sales.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we've got decades of experience in cannabis media, um, four former High Times senior staffers, uh, and it's a free magazine, which is which makes me so excited because, you know, it's distributed uh, at dispensaries, at you know, high-end uh, hemp shops, and and other places. But it's free to the consumer. So, you know, we charge our advertisers to reach the consumers, but uh, the actual consumers get the magazine for free. And and you know, we were basically climbing up a mountain, an impossible mountain, trying to sell magazines in the past, uh, you know, with High Times. And I think. Uh, this model is much more realistic in this day and age to uh, give away the magazines, print print as many as you can and give them away and then, you know, just charge the advertisers uh, and create great content. And, you know, our aim is to be the voice of the Northeast region. Uh, and like I said, we're just up, pumped and excited. The first issue comes out in September uh, of 2020. Please check us out at neleafmag.com. Uh, our press release is there. Uh, more information is there. You can uh, sign up if you're interested in advertising, if you're interested in a subscription, if you're interested in distributing the magazine or any kind of general info, uh, even if you want to contribute, if you're a photographer or a writer uh, and you want to contribute, we we want to be the voice of the region, but we need help from from the people uh, of the region. Uh, you can it's also a big, it's a big region. It is a big region. yeah, exactly. And you know we're here in New York i have you know friends all throughout the region but we really want people on the ground uh, to be reporting on the real issues in the community and the industry and the culture of cannabis in the northeast you can also read the magazines for free uh online at nwleaf.com uh, leaf.com uh, or you can go right to neleafmag.com and scroll to the bottom and you can learn more about all the leaf nation magazines so even if you're in Uh, Maryland or California or Alaska or uh, Oregon or any of our, you know, Leaf Nation states or countries, you can read all the magazines for free online. So please check it out. It's beautiful. Uh, The covers are amazing. The artwork is just fantastic. The content, um, we're we're just, we're really excited. So we also have uh, Instagram uh, that you can follow us, which is Northeast Leaf Mag at Northeast Leaf Mag, and we'll be uh, posting all kinds of updates there. And we also have a Facebook, which is just Northeast Leaf Mag as well, Northeast Leaf Magazine. So uh, please, you know, give us a follow, give us uh, a holler, give us an email. You can email launch at neleafmag.com uh, if you're interested in any of those you know, contributions as well. So yeah, that's the big news we've been waiting to break. For you guys, a uh, new magazine, getting the band back together uh, <laughs> for former high time staffers. And then, you know, we've got Bobby Black as the fifth uh, doing the Amsterdam Leaf next year. So a lot of exciting news from us. And uh, as always, we will keep bringing you the Grow Bud Yourself podcast. Uh, but we also have the Northeast Leaf Mag as a print print outlet for our for our editorial writing and photography skills And I'm just real, real excited to be working with Mike and Mike and Pete again, and to be reaching out for, you know, all types of contributions from listeners like you.
2: Yeah, there's so many ways that we can um, put ourselves into your consciousness. You can listen to us, you could read us, you could check us out online. Uh, But yeah, we're making the announcement now, as Dan mentioned, uh, the actual magazine launches in uh, September, early September. That's right. And um, yeah, so we'll have updates as it goes along, but we're going to get to work on putting that together. We will, of course, continue doing this podcast. And um, and speaking of this podcast, uh, one of our favorite guests, uh, he kind of does a recurring segment on this show. Dr. Mitch Earlywine uh, is going to drop by because, uh, you know, last week we ranted and raved about driving high and we thought, you know, he would be a good perspective to have. But he also has other... Interesting things to, to talk about on the uh, psychological front involving cannabis. You know, Dr. Mitch is a great
1: guest. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's get to our, uh, our discussion with the great Dr. Mitch Earlywine.
2: All right. And, uh, and we are thrilled to once again be joined by our good friend, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Uh, professor of Psychology at SUNY Albany and the author of Understanding Marijuana and uh, the Parent's Guide to Marijuana, Dr. Mitch, thanks for being here again. Pleasure. So um, we understand uh, you have a couple of things that you'd like to talk about. Starting with um, a little bit of a, a cannabis, a cannabis and COVID update.
0: I know that the media is filled with all kinds of conflicting things about cannabis in general with COVID. I haven't seen impressive data saying it's the solution, and there are some handy recommendations about sharing cannabis in the age of COVID, and the bottom line is uh, feel free to divide it up and use it yourself. So this uh, notion that I could hand somebody a joint and maintain six feet of distance is probably a little delusional. I certainly don't want to put my lip on something somebody has just had his or her lip on, it's, uh, it's just not a good habit, shall we say. And I realize there are states that have, you know, 1% or less of their population with COVID, but 1% is all it really takes. And then there are other folks who are really exploding lately. And it's, uh, uh, I don't want to have wearing a mask become some kind of index of uh, political correctness or anything like that. But please don't, don't swap spit. Yeah absolutely
1: uh it's a kind of a new era everybody uh needs to behave like a rastafarian at this point and just uh smoke that joint you know to your own face and you know roll one for your friend and 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 have them smoke it accordingly but uh no sharing of of pipes bongs uh joints vaporizers um but you know you can be a you know six ten feet apart and enjoy the social use Without sharing uh, the actual implements,
0: and right now I do feel like we need all the social support we can get, particularly if it's life lighthearted and delighted. And by all means, I think the plant could help us there.
2: Yeah, that, that seems like common sense, but it's it's good to hear uh, an official opinion on that. And um, I'm, I'm sure that you know, dealing with uh, with the pandemic, with the quarantine, and then maybe a bit of isolation, you're not sharing joints like you might normally. People might be feeling a little bit uh, depressed more so than usual. Um, But there is uh, some news about how cannabis um, works with depression, right?
0: I was intrigued by this uh, crew at Yale who's been uh, essentially downloading all the data from one of the apps that assesses people's cannabis use and their subsequent mood does suggest that cannabis can uh, alleviate some of the emotional side of depressive symptoms Particularly if you've got a strain that you happen to enjoy. Tom Denson and I looked at this over a decade ago and found that some of the ranting and raving we had heard about cannabis causing depression was really a misunderstanding and often had medical users in the same sample. So, of course, folks with AIDS and cancer were more depressed. Now, there are subsets of folks with uh, MS who apparently, if they quit using cannabis, their depressive symptoms change, but I think it's more of a vegetative set of symptoms. So depression tends to have some mood-related items, but also some I-can't-drag-my-ass-out-of-bed items. If you've got a strong indica, of course you can't drag your ass out of bed, and so let's not confuse that with all of cannabis. I think as we start paying more attention to strain-related differences, in the published literature, we'll see that, uh, there's a subset of folks who might very well benefit from cannabis for depression. Yeah. I also think, uh,
1: you know, the way that people are isolating different cannabinoids and terpenoids and flavonoids and all of that, uh, can really pinpoint, uh, maybe not across the board, but specifically for individuals, um, what works best for them. And then, you know, at this point you can kind of isolate that. And if it's, you know, C B G or, or C B N or THCV, THCA, all of these different uh components being isolated, uh, I think that, you know, would benefit too. And I know, you know, I, I wouldn't say I suffer from depression, uh, but you know, I definitely get bummed out, <laughs> you know. And uh a nice, you know, heady sativa can really Uh, take me out of that funk uh, in a way that I don't think anything else really can. Uh, I haven't tried a lot of other things, but uh, it's, 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 it's an enhancement. Like uh, the late Dr. Lester Grinspoon said, it's a thing that enhances whatever it is um, that's going on. And uh, so if you're depressed, it, it, you know, I think there's a possibility maybe it enhances that, but for, for me and for most people, I think uh, it alleviates, you know, that bummed out feeling.
0: There are some complicated contributors. We've seen from the aromatherapy literature, for example, that limonene, the one that creates all those citrusy scents, on its own seems to have a good impact on mood. We might think about it as a sort of attentional capacity and that cannabis might decrease how much attentional capacity you have. With that in mind, then, if you're focusing on something that's fun or funny, then cannabis might make it all the more so if unfortunately you're crying in your beer or something, then unfortunately it might make it more dramatically sad.
2: Hmm. Well, yeah, that makes sense for sure. Um, okay. So just, uh, you know, changing a uh, course real quick here. Uh, people who listen to the show probably remember that uh, last week, Dan and I spent a, you know, a good 15 minutes uh, just basically ranting um, about a <laughs> PSA that had to do with With Driving High, Uh, if you missed that episode, uh, if you go to the um, description of the last episode, episode 11, there's a link to the PSA there. You could watch it. But if you don't want to do that, basically, um, it's a a new ad. It's about 90 seconds from the Ad Council. It was created by Vox, and um, it shows two, uh, you know, 20-something guys uh, that are running from an axe-wielding maniac with a burlap sack on his head as he tries to kill them. And uh, as they're dodging axe blows and so forth, they're they're reciting um, kind of dubious figures about uh, driving under the influence of cannabis. And ultimately, the ad kind of suggests that um, it is safer to face down an axe-murdering maniac Ooh. than to drive high. So uh, we, we bitched about it, but we would love to get your take on it because you're a more qualified
0: person to speak to this, I think. The data on facing an axe-wielding maniac are not... Prevalent, shall we say? (laughs) Nevertheless, we can go back to Roby's work in the late 90s and then subsequent studies that kind of confirm yes, cannabis does change the way people drive, but people tend to compensate. So, what do we see? We see them increasing their stopping distance. So, if they see a stop sign, they start to stop earlier. They're less likely to tailgate, right? They increase the distance between their car and the car in front of them. They drive more slowly. They're extremely unlikely to try to pass other cars. Now, some folks say, well, that's because they had that guy right there in the seat next to them evaluating. Okay. But truth be told, they were safer than folks who had not used cannabis. Where do we see some deficits that staying right down the center of the lane is an automatic process that does seem to have a tougher time to control after using cannabis? When you know that... You can also compensate for that as well. I can't say, hey, go around and drive high, but drive as if you were high, right? (laughs) Go slower. Give yourself plenty of time to get to the stop sign. Don't tailgate. No need to, God forbid, pass another car. Why? Right? And then everything's going to be fine. This axe-wielding murderer thing is sounding like fried eggs in my era. So...
1: Yeah, it really is uh, an, a throwback to a, a, a time of extreme propaganda. And I would think, you know, in this day and age, they would just at least try to have some semblance of, you know, reality. But that's it's just crazy. And, you know, my point being, if you're impaired, don't drive. You know, I mean, that that, you know, goes for alcohol, pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, tiredness. I mean, I think all three of those are far more dangerous than someone that's high on pot and driving, particularly someone who smokes a lot and all the time. Uh, Someone who has never smoked and suddenly, you know, does a dab should certainly probably not get behind the wheel of a car. But, uh, you know, I have some news for people out there. People have been driving high for 50 years at this point. uh, And if the statistics were such that, that was super-duper dangerous. Uh, we would know all about it. And if you're being chased by an axe murderer, uh, get the hell out of there <laughs> by any means necessary. Get, you, you may not be a great pilot, but if there's a plane, you know, get in the plane and take the plane, <laughs> but get away from the killer guy, you know, first. And then worry about, you know, uh, impairment.
0: We do see some decent correlates from some of the roadside sobriety tests. And it's funny because the one that seems to covary with some driving skills that we don't often think of is that standing on one foot with the other foot extended for 30 seconds. If you can't do that, you definitely should not drive. Why not give that a shot before you take out your keys? Nobody minds if you stay an extra half hour at the party and just metabolize a bit, Right. God forbid you actually get to sleep on somebody's couch and just do it all in the morning too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, just really quick though, when it comes to those sobriety tests, and I, I think everybody at this point knows they're having a difficult time uh, coming up with a, a breathalyzer or some sort of roadside check to see how stoned you are. Obviously, uh, because of how cannabis metabolizes and 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 collects in the blood and all of that. Um, has there been any advancement in that? I, they're trying to treat it like alcohol, I guess, and it just doesn't perform like alcohol in the body. Um, but if you're, as Dan mentioned, um, a, a more regular smoker, there's nothing that actually takes that into account um, if, if you're caught driving under the influence, correct?
0: Well, that's why I like the roadside sobriety test. So a number of nanograms per milliliters in your blood means utterly nothing because so many people metabolize so differently and levels of tolerance are so varied. And I hate to say it, but it's the same for alcohol. I've had clients who below .02 get the shakes and should not be drinking unless, I mean, should not be driving unless they've had a couple of drinks, which sounds, I know, absurd. The advantage of the roadside sobriety test is they really are motor skills and they do tend to co-vary, not perfectly, but a little better with how well you can drive. So I like those. The irony is the ones that showed alcohol impairment are not the ones that are affected by cannabis. So, you know, that one where they say, okay, now you're going to walk a straight line. I need you to take 11 steps, turn, and then take 11 steps back to me, heel to toe. What do stone people forget? They can't count to 11, right? Like they're like 15 miles down the road and go, "Oh fuck, I'm supposed to turn around. Right. So it's not what, people tend to do with alcohol and then with the foot extended that I discussed lately apparently they don't necessarily touch down so much but they start doing the arm thing like they're going to keep themselves balanced another telltale sign of uh the magical ideation associated with cannabis so i do feel like those are reasonable indices but we could use them ourselves and say wow i'm just not ready to drive yet i i uh I'm not a particularly good driver myself. I'm grateful to law enforcement. I wouldn't want to do that drive or that job. So let's make their lives a little easier. Let's focus on motor function rather than amount consumed. And I loved uh, Danny's point that Benadryl fatigue, you know, anything that makes it so you can't stand on one foot for 30 seconds ought to be reason enough to go ahead and take a nap before you get behind the wheel.
1: Yeah, you know, I also have a theory, sort of ripped uh, from my own experiences, that people drive uh, more carefully when they're high, because they might have more cannabis on them in the car as well, and they don't want to be pulled over. Um, So there's an abundance of caution taken, you know, where you don't want to run a red light, you don't want to speed or not use your blinker because, you know, as I was taught, you know, one crime at a time, you know, so if it's illegal to be in possession of cannabis and you have that in your car, you certainly don't want to be pulled over searched to have that cannabis taken and, and, and deal with the consequences of, of, of that. And so I think there's also kind of an overabundance of caution that comes from, you know, that prohibition mindset.
0: Well, I'm hoping that there'll be a day where possession is completely illegal, So I wouldn't want that to be the only mechanism to keep us going. Right, but right. I mean, I think psych- that's the more psychological side rather than mm-hmm. the physical
1: side. Uh, at least for me, in the past, you know, I mean, I, you know, I was there's no reason to speed, you know, and get pulled over and get a ticket or have the possibility of even having to speak to an officer. Uh, so why not take your time? I mean, what's the rush?
0: <laughs> I, I couldn't agree
2: more all right well uh, you know um takeaways from this conversation everybody should be driving dirty and uh <laughs> <laughs> and also uh motor skills i never made that connection before your motor skills as they relate to your motor skills um yeah <laughs> we're just about out of time here but thank you so much dr mitch for coming on the show uh, we always appreciate it you're, you're a wonderful guest we thank you for your time and we uh, can't wait Until the next time you join us.
0: I hope I have a haircut by then. (laughs) Talk to you later.
2: Thank you. All right. We'll be right back with more Grow Bud Yourself. Okay. Very cool. Uh, You know, we always appreciate when Mitch drops by. He had some good insights there. You had some good insights there. I enjoyed the, uh, the, the, driving in possession of cannabis, uh, advice.
1: <laughs> yeah. One crime at a time, y'all. Yeah,
2: for <laughs> sure. Um, so yeah, that was great. Um, we actually, we have a really exciting interview coming up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is Colin Bell from mammoth microbes, an amazing, uh, company that makes beneficial, uh, bacteria inoculants and, and they, they have a, a number of different products. Uh, On the market, Uh, but he himself is a PhD uh, in plants and very knowledgeable. This this uh, interview happened in Hawaii at the Hawaii Cannabis Expo this past February. Uh, There's some there's some noise in the background of the interview, but I think the information is very important, and I think uh, you know I think people need to hear about the benefits of these inoculants and these beneficial bacteria and and amazing products from mammoth microbes microbial uh you know success is you know crucial to the success of your plant roots if you're growing in any kind of organic mediums or or organic styles so uh without further ado let's uh we'll be back with colin bell from mammoth uh, microbes that was recorded in hawaii this past february So this is Danny Denko, and I am here with Colin Bell from Mammoth
3: Microbes. Danny, great to be here in Hawaii with you today.
1: <laughs> thank you, thank you, yes. <laughs> Aloha to you. Um, now, uh, I want to introduce you to the people, uh, if they're unfamiliar with mammoth microbes, we'll talk about that in a bit, but um, you have a Ph.D., uh, and what is that Ph.D. in?
3: In microbiology, inv- environmental microbiology. I worked at the university at Colorado State University where we made our technology mammoth pea. Before then, I worked for the United States Forest Service and the United States Department of Agriculture. And I was in school uh, in Texas where I got my degree at Texas Tech. And I worked for years in desert ecology, understanding the interactions between plants and microbes in desert systems and in agriculture systems alike.
1: Okay, now explain what are microbes? Like, you, we hear the word, but I don't know if everybody quite understands what that actually means. Yeah,
3: that's actually pretty important to define. So microbes are biology, they're life, and they're called microbes because they're microscopic, meaning you can't see them with the naked eye. There's two main categories of microbes that we deal with in agriculture more than not, fungi and bacteria bacteria are single cellular organisms very very small fungi are a little bigger that resemble plant roots but they're the organisms that colonized life on earth before plants evolved and so they created a foundation on earth for plants to evolve and from there all of the higher life forms animals and, and humans eventually evolved because of the resource of plants that provided that food source wow
1: okay so microbes are basically the first living thing on earth
3: absolutely 100 for sure
1: <laughs> oh my god That's wild. And you mentioned fungi. And are you talking about the same uh, mycelial strands that run underneath the ground and where mushrooms pop up from?
3: That's right. And there's several groups of of fungi. And we always think about fungi as as mushrooms, but there's multiple groups and different groups and categories. And there's symbiotic fungi, which aren't mushroom-forming, fruit-body-forming, that... Uh, allow plants engage with plant roots, actually infect plant roots to help them take up nutrients. And there's other groups of fungi that are called saprobes, or free-living soil fungi, that do a great job of breaking down decomposing matter, which in turn releases nutrients that plants are able to take up.
1: Right. And now, what, what benefit do uh, microbes have uh, to plant roots that actually results in you know beneficial growth above the ground?
3: Yeah, that's a wonderful question, too. And it's important to understand if you think about microbes being the foundation of all life on earth which allowed plants to exist and evolve they did this because they're bringing benefits to plants and so what microbes do primarily is they release nutrients that are bound in the soil that plants need for growth but are unavailable or not bioavailable so they create enzymes and other functions which actually take and decompose um different substrates when we in turn turns the soil into fertilizer available fertilizer for plants to take up they also engage with plant roots to stimulate their metabolism and physiology so plants are actually thirstier and can take up more roots a lot of bacteria and fungi also do a good job of stimulating the plant immune responses and so they're more pest resistant and they can act as bio shields within the root zone growing along the roots see plants actually scored out sugar or carbon that they grab from the air in CO2 and they squirt it all the way through their body into the roots and feed microbes that sugar stimulate that activity and in turn that microbial activity increases nutrient hotbeds or hot zones in nature so plants can take up those nutrients so it's a it's a really symbiotic relationship
1: right the relationship is 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 back and forth the roots mutual yeah the roots are helping break down nutrients and the uh, and, and, and giving off sugar. I mean, the microbes are breaking down the nutrients, and the roots are giving sugar to the microbes. That's right.
3: That's right. Wow. And so plants take carbon in the form of CO2 from the air, and mm-hmm. all the other nutrients they ha- that they need for growth is in the soil. They're not very capable of re- liberating those nutrients from oh. the soil, and that's where microbes come in. So microbes create a soil functional property, which release the nutrients that are bound in the soil So the plants can take them up. The plants can suck air or carbon out of the air all day long. And they end up squirting and feeding the microbes to stimulate that growth. Mm-hmm.
1: And that relationship is really basically the first relationship uh, uh, between life on earth. Yeah. And we're still experiencing it now. And I think, uh, you know, we're sort of glossing over the fact that this can actually sequester carbon and, help us with global warming even. I mean, this is why, you know, Paul Stamets says that, you know, uh, mushrooms could save the world, and, and but, but it's really about that. It's not just the, the mushrooms, it's the symbiotic relationship between plant roots and microbes. Uh, and, so, and, th- and that's how you create living soil, right?
3: That's right. That's exactly right. There's co- a couple other higher organisms, you know, all the way up to the earthworms, mm-hmm. but all the soil-dwelling bi- biology which functions together in what we call like an ecosystem or a soil eco- ecosystem to cycle nutrients, ultimately supporting plant growth. And And that's funny that you brought up global warming. All my background, academic research for, you know, the last two decades was on climate change. Right. And we were looking at you know, effects of climate and how plants and microbes interacted together to support the resilience in climate change. And so it's it's absolutely true. And another thing I think is fascinating, and it's kind of a side note, we talk about Fungi, microscopic, very small. We, you mentioned mushrooms. You know, one of the largest organisms on Earth right. is a fungi right. growing in Oregon, under Michigan. Right, yeah, right. I, th- I thought Michigan? it was. I thought it was Michigan. Okay. Yeah. But in Oregon, there's going to be huge Feelings. growth, and, and you don't see it above ground necessarily. Most of it's below ground, mm-hmm. and then they pop mushrooms up. But the uh, solitary organism that can almost cover the whole state below ground,
1: single cellular as well. Like as these strands are. And uh, also what's amazing is that uh, the worms, when they tunnel back and forth, manage to not break the strands. Like, they know that's there and they go around it. Uh, So when they do the digging, they actually don't break the strands. When we do the digging, uh, as in tilling the soil, we're breaking all that up. And so it has benefits uh, that first year of releasing a lot of that clay and stuff. And and there's a lot of nutrient there that's released when you till. Uh, But then you're depleting it year after year because those, those the mycorrhiza has to build back. Those strands have to actually find their way back through the soil. They've been broken up into little bits and pieces. Uh, and that can take many years to rebuild. So uh, I would imagine that you're a proponent of sort of that no-till, you know, putting up cover crops and maybe just breaking the earth kind of thing right like
3: absolutely and you know these are the management practices that we've adopted for a long time i think you and i are having a past conversation about the green revolution where we adopted not only plant genetics and improved uh, nutrient delivery systems but also chemical fertilizers along with a lot of management practices to feed the world Mm -hmm. and back in in the in that time it was thought of as a good thing, but what we know now, and this is decades later, is all that physical activity, tilling the soil actually depletes the potential of the biology in the soil to support life. Mm -hmm. And then you add all the chemical fertilizers as we were talking about also in our last conversation, Mm -hmm. it really declines the habitat, the livable habitat for the fungi and the bacteria to live to sustain that life. And so our current agriculture management practices deteriorate natural processes that we have to have and over time what we've seen is soils uh, microbial biodiversity has declined significantly where they almost become dependent on chemical fertilizers Mm -hmm. and i'm 100 percent a proponent for turning that around because it's not sustainable
1: right right and we're not even touching on the fertilizer issue the plants are weak so they're vulnerable to pests so you need them to be Uh, either Roundup-ready kind of Monsanto-type seeds just to survive and then be covered with, you know, Roundup so that, you know, like that's what they do with soybeans, I would imagine, and things like that. For sure. uh, And then, you know, the runoff of all of that uh, chemical nutrient, it kills lakes and rivers and, and, you know, created the Salton Sea in California, just a completely dead whole, you know, you know, Acres and acres of, of lake that that used to be, like you know, a playground is now uh, just a dead salt sea. And so we know, you know, obviously that that's uh, bad. What what you know, a product like Mammoth Microbes, uh, does it, what category of you know plant nutrient does that fall under? I mean, everybody's got their you know three part system or their ten part system or whatever they
3: use. Um,
1: is, you know, would it be called an additive? Would it be called like, what, what's, what's the category? Of
3: so that? it is called an additive in agriculture. This type of product is called a, a microbial biostimulant. It's not a nutrient source. It helps maximize nutrient use efficiency. And the idea, and, and you know, we made this to feed the world naturally sustainably. to so start bringing natural solutions to agriculture, to the world. So we can start feeding our people in the world naturally and sustainably. And the idea is, and you, and you nailed it on the head, Fertilizers are overused. They build up in soils. They create huge environmental toxicity events in, in water pollution, etc. And if we can get microbes to mine the fertilizer that's built up in the soils, we can reduce fertilizer inputs and use nature with precision to start feeding our crops again. Of course, they need nutrients, but it's a biostimulant or a catalyst, an additive, that supplements nutrients so farmers ultimately can reduce fertilizer input with more natural solutions to feed the plants, again, naturally and sustainably, and bring in a ton of value and profit to farmers as well.
1: Right. Um, Now, can we talk about uh, your experience with cannabis? Sure. Okay, so uh, tell me about that and and what role that's played in your
3: life. Yeah, it's it's everything, you know. So uh, as a youth, just quickly, you know, I'm I'm an older gentleman now. Um, I was an advocate of cannabis and i grew up in west texas and it was very black market and it still is there and so i was just an advocate of of the movement in the industry and the culture all together and and eventually i became a scientist and a phd scientist and and i was following my dream uh working at colorado state university and then uh, very um very successful published dozens of peer-reviewed publications. Ended up getting a grant to focus on applying my academic training to bring these natural solutions to agriculture. In Colorado, at the same time, we were experiencing the movement of legal canna- uh, legalized cannabis, and um, we started realizing there might be a need to bring these natural solutions to the cannabis industry for, 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 for farmers to bring value to these cannabis farmers. Started engaging in cannabis growers with cannabis farmers in Colorado, and they saw such great results. That it's and, and I knew I was bringing value to these farmers they were telling us and not only were we seeing increases in yield but increases in in uh, cannabinoid profiles and in terpene profiles and I thought you know what this is going to be the start of how we can launch this technology to feed the world naturally and sustainably through the cannabis industry and I left the university in March 2015 to start this company just me started making mammoth pea in a little one car garage and a rental flat with a buddy then we transitioned to a uh, about five months later into a transmission stop, a 1,200-square-foot transmission stop. My son and I cleaned it all out. That was our biotech facility number two. And now we have a 12,000-square-foot facility still in Fort Collins, Colorado with about 45 people. And we're selling Mammoth pea all over the world to cannabis growers, 100%. Uh,
1: that's awesome. Shout-out to Vaden and Erica, uh, Mammoth P employees extraordinaire. That's right. Um, so everybody always says, okay, you know danny this you can do you know you can do this on a small scale but you know we we've got acres and acres that we're growing and we simply can't you know afford to uh do it you know sustainably or we can't do it on this large scale um what do you say to that and 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 how can people apply uh you know, scale up and still be you know doing the right thing
3: Well, I'll tell you what, scale is everything when you come into a business. Every technology better scale or you just have a limited... Application And we know our technology is compatible. Anyone can use this without changing a thing. And it scales. But as a manufacturer, we need to make sure we have the right volumes and pricing. That makes sense. And as a, as a young company, we're selling into retail hydro shops. And so there are liter bottles. And then we graduated to gallons. And we obviously have smaller bottles. Now we have totes. So we can actually deliver, deliver to the farmers and make sure they can apply it for applications. The, my goal Number one, what I tell our guys, Vaden, Erica, everyone, every day, our job is one thing, bring value to growers. And if we can't do that, we're not doing our job. And so we make sure this product is as concentrated as possible. And so at this 0.6 mils per application rate, which I dialed in to make sure it was just the very lowest concentration rate that works great, it scales. We have... Huge farmers all over the country in, on the mainland, we're in Hawaii now, so on the mainland especially, they're using Mammoth pea. they're seeing great results and, and what I'd say is once you use it and you see that value or return on the backside, ten to twenty percent increase in yield is the range we see. We say an average of sixteen and it's an average, but usually it's between ten and twenty depending on the strain. That profit that you get from that investment, which you should invest in your farm to get the profit on the backside, is undeniable.
1: Wow. And it can be used with any, you know, base nutrient system uh, that people have. Uh, Probably more effective if people are using something that is uh, on the organic side or, or, you know, clean green certified side. Uh, Correct?
3: It's, you know, that's, uh, I see as good of results with organic growers, surprisingly enough, as I do with salt growers. And the reason is I think there's a missing component in the salts. Uh, don't deliver well, and the plants aren't responding as well just to a salt. And when you start introducing natural processes of microbes into that rhizosphere or root zone, we see significant increases, huge jumps with cocoa growers and salts. Uh, not only in yield, but we'll see huge spikes in cannabinoid and terpene profiles. And right. so it, it just goes to show. And what it tells me is, you know, we're humans. We are not you know the makers of, of nature and we don't understand everything but introducing these natural processes delivers things beyond what we can just tell from an npk solution that the plants really need right. and so the microbes help us do that
1: it seems like a win-win because yeah you know everybody wants a bigger yield but the truth is what we're doing is trying to create that essential oil and if you can increase essential oil production and yield at the same time you know something like Boosting with CO2 increases yield, but I don't know that it has anything to do with actual, uh, you know, production of essential oil. Uh, but clearly the microbes have this effect. Now, I also saw that there was another product on your, on your, at your booth. Uh, seems like a pretty recent addition to the Mammoth uh, line. Yep. And what is that?
3: It's a bio-control product, and we know that growers have a lot of pain with pest pressure. Right. And so we have two different categories that we want to bring value to growers. We have our performance category, the bio mammoth piece or product there, and then we have a bio-control line, and it's an essential oil that we've actually used fractionated aspects of time, which we know uh, works very well to repel and knock down mites, uh, spider mites in particular, and... Uh, Rips whiteflies and aphids, mm-hmm. and it's something that, again, bringing nature to agriculture. You can use it as a foliar just to keep the pests off, and it's something for our early, early plant up to early flower, uh, hard and clone to early flower solution mm-hmm. that works really well. So we're bringing nature to agriculture. We think that pests and pest prevention is really important, along with the performance side.
1: Right, right. Well, healthy plants are better able to resist, uh, you know, infestations as well. Um, so keeping plants healthy, I think, is so important. It seems that that's what microbes do uh, in a way that no, you know, NPK system or, you know, uh, any kind of, you know, other type of additive. Um, now, what about, you know, uh, mycorrhizal uh, in conjunction with that? We talked about that as like the relationship. Uh, Do you recommend that people also, you know, use a mycorrhizal kind of product?
3: Uh, I do. I I love the mycorrhizal technologies. In nature, it works very well. You know, the microbes that we have in mammoth pea came from nature, they came from natural soils, and they worked very well and lived with mycorrhizal fungi and saprobes, these free living fungi that I mentioned. This is just a technology that plugs right into our broader community. I think there's a lot of microbial products you can use together, depending on your management. To get a stacking or cumulative results, you have to experiment with that a little bit. But for sure, uh, bacteria and fungi work typically work very, very well together, especially mycorrhizal fungi. Right,
1: right. Now I also when I like dip into a compost pile, there's all kinds of like tiny little bugs that are just like breaking everything down. Yeah. Right. So you talked about the earthworms, but there's another role that's being played by all these like arachnids
3: and, and that's right so, so there's mites and there's nematodes which are very 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 small worms and then there's the larger worms and we have the microbes and what happens and in, in, in a broader sense there's larger particles even if they seem very small in the soil uh, for plants or for insects are huge and we find that these different levels These soil trophic levels is what they call them, from the larger insects and worms all the way down to the smaller fungi and then the microscopic fungi, obviously, and uh, bacteria. They break down particles from larger to smaller. Then that next trophic level breaks down uh, these particles from smaller to larger, and they're eating each other at some level also, so they're breaking down particles from larger to smaller and is creating it down to the ionic level, so they're converting particles and organic particles in soil to ion nutrients which plants can then take up and so it's a nutrient cycling function and soil nutrient cycling 101
1: amazing now for people who uh, like to brew their own compost teas and things like that does can mammoth be added into that i know that there is microbes involved and i know that you're trying to multiply those by like you know from the millions to the billions or something yep when you oxygenate that tea yep uh is 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 mammoth something it it
3: works great now what i like to say is you know you want to grow that tea you have this biodiversity that's working great and and a lot of growers, again, are using mammoth pea in their teas. What I recommend is, gr- is growing and brewing your tea within the last half day before you apply your tea into the soil. Add mammoth pea microbes at the recommended application rate for per volume, 0.6 mils per gallon. And what you're going to do is add the functional diversity of mammoth pea to your tea. So you're adding some microbial precision to that tea, which is a little unknown. People don't always know exactly what's in that tea, but we're adding some confidence with uh, with the mammoth pea into that, and we see great results. You can add mammoth pea at the beginning of that tea, but these are active microbes, and they'll grow, and they'll grow more concentrated than you probably need. And so there's a balance, it's an experiment, but what I like to do is nurture the diversity that you want to nurture with the tea that you're growing and then just add it in at the end.
1: Nice. Um, what's the biggest misconception you think that people have about uh, this process and maybe leading to, into mistakes that they might make uh, when they're growing?
3: Well, so I think that people in general, and I've, we've, the industry's come a long way, don't understand microbiology, they don't understand the importance of microbes, and they don't understand the results they can get from that. And So just having that education gap has been a great journey for me. You know, as an academic, and I've been teaching classes for a long time, teaching microbiology classes all the way back at Texas Tech and, and then into Colorado. Microbes support all life on Earth, and we've done numerous side-by-sides where if you don't change a thing except adding microbes, like mammoth pea, not only do you see increases in yield with significant returns on investment, but increases in quality extractable oils terpenes the flavor the whole deal it doesn't take much but biology matters and your plants respond and people that grow organically as an example versus salt even if it's the same strain tastes like a completely different plant once you consume it and that microbes in the life actually do that you know using it with precision and confidence has been a challenge in general agriculture microbes are tricky sometimes you have to know how to store them and make sure that your products are robust and you understand the shelf life. Nutrients typically last forever. Microbes typically have a constrained shelf life. So understand that it's not a nutrient. It's life and treated accordingly. It's not magic. Mm -hmm. It's not chemistry necessarily. It's biochemistry through activity of life.
1: Right. Well, the thing I hear from uh, salt growers, you know, uh, chemical nutrient guys, is that the plant can't tell the difference. It's nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium... It's a, you know, how, how does a plant know whether it's coming from a natural source or from a chemical source? Uh, what do you say as a, you know, PhD in, this, in studying this all your
3: life? It's a great, it's a great point. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, nitrogen is nitrogen, phosphorus is phosphorus, potassium is potassium and all the micro ions. But what I'll say is when we do side-by-sides or people grow organically versus salts, the plants taste different so i think nature does stuff that we can't conceive as humans and i'm free to surrender to the fact that i don't know everything as a phd microbiologist nonetheless uh, someone who studies nature avidly we don't know what we don't know about how microbes interact we know a lot but there's so much more to learn and so surrendering to the data and, and understanding hey there's something going on here we understand about one fraction of how microbes and biology interacts in precision agriculture, like cannabis growing to enhance crop quality and yield is, uh, is, is okay with me. I know the results speak for themselves and I see it time and time again.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Colin Bell, uh, the founder and CEO, I I would imagine of, uh, mammoth, uh, microbes. Thank you very much. And, uh, Tell people how they can uh, find out more about you and Mammoth Microbes and, and, you know, all that.
3: Absolutely. So, you know, we have a website, mammothmicrobes.com. You can look at us on Instagram all day long, mammothmicrobes.com, Facebook, Mammoth Microbes. You can find us, Google Mammoth P, Google Mammoth Microbes, Um, Colin at grossentia.com. Our company's name is Grossentia, our brand, Mammoth, Mammoth Microbes reach out we're very easy to find and we're in almost every grow shop in the country
1: right on thank you very much colin uh we will be back with more all right thank you so much uh to colin from uh, mammoth microbes i i gotta say i do really miss hawaii
2: yeah. Do you miss the parking lot that you recorded that? In? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, you know, it just, you know, I had to get him outside uh, because it was even more noisy inside so that we tried to find the quietest place, but uh, obviously wasn't super successful on that. But I hope people uh, learn from that information because he's, you know, a wealth of information
2: when no, he was a he's a great guest, and it was awesome to have him. And I, on some level, I should actually just be appreciative because you obviously have a, a, a remarkable amount of faith in me as a a sound editor. <laughs> you can record all these things and bring them back. But um, great interview and uh, an excellent guest. And that, of course, brings us to the cultivation section of the show.
1: Yes, indeed. And this week, I would like to discuss the Screen of Green method. A lot of people call it Scrog. Uh, or scrogging. Uh, Basically, it's a training method uh, to increase yields. Uh, But, you know, again, as with most training methods that increase yields, it also increases the vegetative time uh, a bit. But what you get back in the yield is phenomenal. So um, there's a few different techniques that people employ uh, during the vegetative stage uh, to produce more branches at canopy level, more colas. Um some of these are different training techniques, uh even pruning, uh, and all kinds of things, you know, even putting sinkers on branches to lower them down and thimming, and, and There's there's a lot of different styles, but the screen of green is very popular, particularly in closet grows, tent grows, uh boxes, because it really maximizes that space um with a minimal amount of plants. So, you know, the first thing is you with a longer veg time you're gonna want a bigger container, so know, five gallons minimum, 10 gallons also really good if you're going to do this. Um, Some people go extreme, you know, 35 gallon and one plant in a tent and really, you know, veg it out a while and and spread it out. Uh, It's really up to your personal preference. But the key is to maintain a level canopy using some type of trellising. So uh, chicken wire, very popular. Uh, Sometimes those holes are a little small and, and then trimming and pruning gets a little rough. But there's also a number of different types of trellising that use string as well that you can use for screen of green. Basically, you know, uh, the key is basically that as the plant grows up into your horizontal screen that you've installed, uh, then you literally start training the different branches of the plant into different. Uh, Parts of the screen and then as it tries to grow up and out you just keep training it. So pulling it down it's almost like a bonsai style technique, so um, The branches of the plants are spaced through a horizontal wire or string grid Um, And this way, you know, you know that the light footprint is kind of like a big square and this way You're spreading all those branches out into that square and you can literally see the different holes and try to fill each one Uh, with one of these growing branches, and then each one becomes a cola, and you have this beautiful, uh, you know, just level map of of buds, and it's way more than you'd get if you were just growing like a Christmas tree-style plant, you know, and I'm talking ounces and ounces more. Um, By the time the plant's ready to flower, you'll have that even canopy across the entire width uh, of your tent or your closet, um, your plants will need an additional time in the vegging chamber, so this is all about vegging uh, at this point. Um, you also want to trim off the lower branches uh, underneath that canopy so you're not wasting space under there. You let a little bit of air flow through because as the branches get denser up top, uh, you also run into the fact that you you know the denser they get, the more susceptible they are. Uh, to airborne mold and so if you increase the airflow underneath the canopy level you avoid that so that's important Um, now as the growing shoots approach the trellis you bend them to fill the empty holes in the canopy Uh, then you leave them alone basically once you start the flowering process then you know always remove yellow burnt and damaged leaves don't leave them on the plant and uh, you know this is a really wonderful way like I said to increase yields uh, it is sometimes difficult when it comes to harvesting because you, know, you have this uh, entangled kind of rope or, or string or metal in the case of chicken wire. And in that case, uh, you just have to kind of cut around it and you'll you know, you figure it out after a while. It's, it's not that difficult, but what it gets you more in yield. Uh, is well worth the extra energy if you want to check out uh people on instagram just search for the word scrog um there's a guy named scrog king who's amazing on there um but s-c-r-o-g scrog uh which basically stands for screen of green and uh that is the style of scrogging and it is an amazing way to increase yields in particular i think for micro grows, tents and uh and closet st- sized grow rooms. scrogging is basically a must if you really want to pull out as much uh, you know as you can out of that space.
2: All right, very good. So uh, some good info on scrogging there. We appreciate that for everyone who uh, who wants to do some scrogging. Um, okay, so uh, at this point, we answer questions from our listeners on the show. If you have a question that you'd like Dan to answer on uh, Grow Bud yourself. You can get in touch with us by email. That is info at growbudyourself.com. Uh, you could also get us on socials. Uh, he is at Danny Danko. I am at Mike Check G. The show is at Grow Bud Yourself. We're on Patreon. We're everywhere. So uh, send us your question and we will answer it on the show. Are you ready to get started?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
2: Okay, so we've got some from, uh, from our Facebook page and also uh, by email. What do you want to start with? Uh,
1: let's start with email.
2: Starting with email from uh, Jaime. Uh, Jaime writes, hey guys, love the show. I think you're doing a great job. Gotta say, Ed had me laughing in the last episode. Uh, anyway, my question, my question is about lights. How do you determine minimum light requirements in a grow tent?
1: Okay, that is a great question. And, um, you know, my rule of thumb uh, typically has been that you want about 50 watts per square foot. Uh, with the HID system high intensity discharge but this uh, applies to uh, LEDs and fluorescents as well um, 50 watts per square foot which uh, with HIDs will give you 6,000 lumens per square foot uh, which is basically the the minimum now uh, that's for strong growth and you're gonna create a lot of heat so you're gonna need uh, to pull that heat out and so that's the important thing you know just you don't want to do overkill because if you overlight your space, uh, you're going to fry your plants and it's going to be too much heat for you to deal with. So, you know, if you have a cupboard size micro grow and you put a thousand watt light in there, uh, the plants don't have a chance. You really need to understand climate control and how to control that heat uh, that you're putting out. And so, like I said, requirements, I would say bare minimum 50 watts per square foot. Uh, but you don't really want to exceed, let's say, you know, 100 watts per square foot either so somewhere in between there uh typically although you know it it varies for different lighting systems because of course uh ceramic metal halides uh, produce less heat and as well as leds and fluorescence so typically this is for high intensity discharge meaning uh, metal halide or high pressure sodium lighting
2: okay uh jaime we hope that helps you out there um with your lighting in that grow tent let's move on to d man who writes Hey dudes, love the show. I've been using a 30-year-old magnetic 400-watt HPS system and need to update. So how do you feel about the 315 CMH light system? I will use a 4x5-foot tent. So uh, do you feel that this light is strong enough? I've always felt my 400-HPS magnetic ballast was too weak. I was in a hydro store and checking it out and uh, I was recommended that over a 1000-watt HPS. I appreciate any advice you might have. So, what would you say to D Man?
1: Okay, uh, D Man, thank you for the question. Um, four by five foot tent, you know, you, it could handle a thousand, but like I said earlier, I mean, that just creates a lot of heat. Uh, so, if you're looking into CMH, um, I would look a little bit bigger. You know, the 315 is great for, uh, you know, a three by three, but I think if you go with a 500 watt or even a 630 um, which is double what the 315 is so you know and but it's still a lot less heat than you're going to get from that 1000 watt light so I would look into my, my first recommendation would be the 630 watt uh, CMH which is a ceramic metal halide system. Uh, and I think that'll give you the best of both worlds. You know, like if the 400 was too weak and the 1,000 is too strong, that 615, uh, the 630 is going to be perfect. And, you know, a, a, on that note as well to you and the previous uh, writer, Jaime, um, you know, the reflector is very important to this as well. You really want to guide that light down to your plants. So you want to make sure you get a reflector. Uh, that properly does that. You know, some of the parabolics and stuff that people used maybe 30 years ago uh, are certainly not nearly as efficient as the ones that really direct that light right down onto your, your canopy footprint.
2: Okay, there you go. We hope that helps you out there, D-Man. Um, let's move to Facebook where Chelsea B. writes, Hey, Danny and Mike, I just started listening to your show as a way to learn a little more about growing bud myself. Seems like I came to the right place. I'm on episode four right now, and this is the first uh, time I've attempted to grow. I have three plants that started as clones and three autoflowers. I've heard so much about growing, I ultimately decided to go as simple and organic as possible with just some soil, water, and sunshine. I went to Michigan M3 soil to pot my plants. I was advised it was best um, and would have enough nutrients for the life of the plant, but I expected more growth out of them. Yesterday, I added a mixture of earthworm castings and organic topsoil to the planters in an attempt to add more nutrients without burning the plants. Overall, I'm just wondering if there's any major do's or don'ts throughout the process I should look for. For this go-around, I'm not looking to increase the yield, just grow the best bud I can. So, Chelsea, uh, I guess, wants to know if there's any major things she uh, she should do when growing weed. Danny Denko, what do you think?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I could go on and on. But the important thing here uh, is because you're using that uh, M3 soil, there's a lot of nutrients already in there. uh, And that's why you're advised uh, that it should be there for the life of the plant. But if you're overwatering, you're leaching a lot of those nutrients out the bottom of your pots. uh, So that could be an issue. It is a a big thing with beginners, uh, both overfeeding and overwatering. Uh, so I would check into, you know, always maintaining the pH of your, uh, soil as well. Uh, a lot of times people will misread a a deficiency when it's actually uh, a pH fluctuation that won't allow your plants to take in nutrients. So then you give them more nutrients and now it becomes kind of a toxic environment. So, um, always monitor the pH, uh, don't overwater, don't overfeed, uh, those are don'ts. Uh major do's, you know, uh give the plant as much sunshine as possible. Uh cover it up if there's bad weather, you know, if there's a lot of rain or wind or anything like that, you know, cover cover the plant if you can. Um other than that, you know, I think uh you know, you're not looking to increase yield and you're looking to just grow the best bud, so I think, you know, feed lightly. Uh if you see the plant, you know, starting to yellow, give it a boost, but otherwise um, you know just keep the plants happy and uh those are the do's and don'ts for the process uh enjoy the enjoy the ride
2: all right very good thank you again uh chelsea and do keep us uh updated on your grow we hope it goes well uh let's do one more question here uh this also came through facebook and it's from joe silverback well that's a that's a masculine name okay <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Joe Silverback writes: Is growing CBD flower from seeds any different than growing cannabis? And uh, do you have any info on how to grow CBD plants? So, what do you think?
1: Uh, yeah, well, it is—it uh, is the same. I mean, it is—it's all cannabis. So, CBD flower is also cannabis. It's just uh, not THC-rich uh, cannabis. So, the process is the same. You know, you just—you you want the cannabinoids and the essential oils. Uh, so, you know, the, the process is exactly the same as you would uh, for THC rich cannabis is for CBD flower cannabis. But, uh, you know, a lot of CBD flower also grows slightly differently. You know, it can grow more like a hemp plant uh, depending. And there's also auto flowering CBD plants as well. Uh, so most of the same, you know, techniques apply. Uh, but I would also be aware that there can be differences as far as where you're getting those CBD flower seeds or clones.
2: Makes sense. Okay. Um, Thank you, Joe Silverback. Thank you, everybody else who wrote in. We appreciate the questions. Uh, If you, listener, have a question that you'd like Dan to address on this very show, please do get in touch with us. Uh, You could email us at info at growbudyourself.com, also on socials, on Patreon, What do you say, Dan? We take a little break, come back and wrap
1: this up. Let's do this thing. Hey guys, I want to remind you about vapor.com. As always, go to vapor.com for all your vaporizer needs. Use promo code GBY, that's GBY for grow, bud yourself, for 15% off anything on the site. Uh, That includes the Puffco Peak. That's my go-to daily, you know, non-rig driver. Uh, And, you know, they have everything else on there, too. So no matter what you're into when it comes to Vapor or CBD or anything else, uh, accessory-wise, Vapor.com, promo code GBY gets you 15% off anything at the site. Check them out. Please support. And uh, thank you for your support. All right, here we are, and I think it's time to wrap it up.
2: Yes, it is time to wrap it up.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, hey, as always, thank you uh, to DJ Jacques and Winstrong Thank you uh, to Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Thank you to Colin Bell from Mammoth uh, Microbes. And thank you to Timothy Quillen, uh, one of our patrons, uh, who earned a shout-out uh, by being in that, you know, heady chief's... Uh, 42 dollar a month level uh so thank you timothy you also got a book in the mail coming to you and uh we really truly appreciate your support uh and keep it nice and green and lit yes indeed it's patreon.com danny danko uh we're approaching 40 patreons at this point we'd love a few more when we reach 42 i'm going to give away uh something real cool And again, if you sign up at the $25 a month level, you get a free copy of my book signed and mailed directly to your door. Uh, You know, it's a great way to support the show. uh, And it's a great way to get extra content because we've got all kinds of cute little videos there as well uh, that are exclusives to our Patreon viewers, including Jen Doe talking about her favorite way to consume hash. And me and Jorge playing with dolls and a bunch of other cool stuff. So Uh, we are going to do
2: that pot quiz um, by Zoom for our patrons or Patreons. So um, if you are on Patreon and you want to participate, comment on this episode. I'll also find if you've commented previously. But comment on this episode if you want to uh, be pot quizzed by Dan and I. And uh, we're going to do that. We're going to Zoom you. That's coming soon. So keep it in mind.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, shout out to vapor.com. You know, use uh, that GBY code for 15% off. And we truly appreciate your support. I think it's time to put this one in the books. Yeah, man. Let's put it in the books. All right. That does it for episode number 12. We will see you guys next week, as always, with number 13.
3: Stay strong, y'all.